this morning I do have an announcement that came to me. Uh, there is a white Ford pickup out here that uh, has some lights on, so that might be yours. You might want to uh, attend to that. I've got a picture up here on the screen. Anyone know what that is? It is called a spork, although some people call it a fork. Some people call it a spoon. Here in the South, many people just call it a glorious invention. <laughs> but you know, for years they used to debate whether or not it was a fork or whether or not it was a spoon until the Van Milling Company in the 1970s actually got a patent on it and they patented in capital letters the word spork. And you can just kind of see it's half spoon, half fork, and they actually make some that have a little bit of a serrated edge on it that you can also cut things with it. And uh, in practice, of course, it's meant to be used both as a spoon and a fork. I've seen a lot of Christians who remind me of sporks. They really don't seem to know quite what they are. They seem to be half into Jesus and kind of half into the world, and in the end, they're not really neither. There's a book titled The Scandal of the Evangelical Conscience by Ron Snyder. The subtitle is why are Christians living just like the rest of the world? In his book, he gives some statistics about spouse abuse and racism and premarital sex and materialism and addictions. And he makes the point that these things are almost as common in the 40% of the American population that claims to be born-again Christians as they are in the 60% who don't claim to be born-again Christians. He writes this, Every day, the church is becoming more like the world it allegedly seeks to change. You have to admit, there is a big gap between what God intends for us to be and what we really are. The Bible says over in Romans, do not conform any longer to the patterns of this world, but be you transformed by the renewing of your mind. But the vast majority of Christians have embraced most of the provocative dress, the loose values, moral codes, crude language, self-indulgent, selfish attitudes of our culture. And it's not just nominal Christians that we're talking about this morning. We read about clergy and, and all different denominations that are being accused of, of sexual abuses. We read about ministers that are struggling with alcohol and other types of addictions. We read about CEOs of Christian nonprofit organizations and clergy that, you know, are having to resign because of extramarital affairs. And Christians display such little distinctiveness that it's no wonder that we're not making any impact 
on our world. We're not salt and light like we're supposed to be. We're more like sporks. We're just kind of like everybody else. And over in the book of Ephesians, where we're going to be for the next four or five weeks, Paul takes issue with that. In Ephesians 4 and verse 5, he takes issue with the fact that Christians aren't living a distinctive lifestyle. And so what we're going to be doing over the next four or five weeks is we're going to do this series that we're calling Switch. And we're going to talk about switching our mindsets and switching our values and switching our standards and switching our focus. You know, it's interesting that almost all of Paul's letters, when you study them, he usually starts out in the first part of his letters talking about doctrinal things. And that is the case with Ephesians. The first three chapters, which we actually looked at about a year and a half ago in a series we called Know Who You Are. He talks about the fact that we are children of God. That we have been saved by grace. And, and let me say this. Once you are saved, once you've accepted Jesus Christ as your Savior, you are always saved. The doctrine for that is called eternal security. When you become a child of God, which he talks about in the book of Ephesians, you are always a child of God. It's just like my own children. They're always going to be my children. It doesn't matter what part of the world they go live in. It doesn't matter what they do. It doesn't matter if they said I wasn't their dad anymore. That wouldn't change anything. might not be the best of circumstances, but they would still be my children. And once you are a believer, once you've accepted Christ, you are always a child of God. So he spends the first three chapters talking about that, that we are, that we are children of God if we've accepted Christ, and we are saved by grace only. And then when he gets to chapter 4, it's like he says, okay, because you are children of God, this is how you ought to live. And so he gets very practical. And so we're going to kind of dive in to that practical part of the book of Ephesians. And we're going to start in verse 17. And it says this. So I tell you this, and all the words will be up on the screen here, and insist on it in the Lord. You must no longer live as the Gentiles do in their futility of thinking. So we're going to be talking about switching a thinking today, or a mindset would be a better word. Switching from a world mindset to a biblical mindset. Our Christian mindset ought to be more than just Bible knowledge. It ought to affect our behavior. But sadly, so often it doesn't. That book I mentioned to you earlier, th th these are his statistics, of course. Ron Snyder says that, or he thinks that of the 40%, of the 40% that came, came to claim to be believers, that really only 9% of them of the 40%, only 9% of the 40% live with a Christian type of mindset. And he gives some interesting thoughts on this. These people, he said, are three times more likely than other adults not to use tobacco products, 
twice as likely to volunteer time to help needy people. They are five times less likely than the adults generally to report that their careers come first. He said they have lower rates of domestic abuse than others. They are nine times more likely than others to avoid adult-only materials, which I think all that is, is kind of interesting. That's the very positive side. So we're going to kind of contrast the mindsets this morning as Paul does. The bottom line is this. Our lifestyle shouldn't look like the world's lifestyle. Christ has transformed us and is transforming us, and that ought to show. So the first point this morning is we need to avoid the secular mindset. Look again in verse 17, what Paul says. He says, so I tell you this and insist on it in the Lord that you no longer live as the Gentiles do. So he's talking to these Ephesian Christians. A lot of them are Jews. He says, you don't need to live like those Gentiles do. You're a Christian now. You ought to live differently. And he goes on, and the futility of their thinking, they are darkened in their understanding and separated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardening of their hearts. And he uses two phrases here to kind of describe that secular mindset that we are to avoid. He uses the phrase futile thinking in verse 17. You know what futile thinking is? The word futile means kind of pointless, meaningless, empty. For instance, it would be futile to use a garden hose to try to put out a forest fire. That'd be useless, right? It would be pointless. Well, this verse is saying it is futile or pointless to have thinking that doesn't have God at the core. It's as dumb as trying to put out a forest fire with a garden hose if you don't have God in your thinking. But so many people do that, Christians too. They marginalize God in their thinking, and their thinking becomes increasingly futile. He says that's as dumb as trying to put out a fire with a garden hose. Or maybe this, another example. Imagine that you're a tight rope walker. I know that's stretching it for a lot of us, right? But you're a, you're a tight rope walker, and maybe you're in downtown Chicago. And they have this wire stretched out between a couple high-rise buildings. Let's say it's, I don't know, 50 stories tall. And you're getting ready to step on that first wire, and you've got your pole, and you're ready to go. And all at once, one of your assistants says to you, um, the wire on the other end is not really anchored very well. Well, nobody's going to step out on that, right? Why? it would be futile, right? In fact, it's probably going to be fatal. Yet, we tell our young people all the time, we don't know where you came from, we don't know where you're going, we don't know who you are, maybe you came from monkeys, we don't know. And they have no sense of identity, they have no sense of destiny, they, they, don't, they don't know who they are, 
And they just kind of arrive at the conclusion that, that life is meaningless, life is futile. And since we don't know what life is about, where I came from, or who I am, then I might as well just live for the moment. I might as well just get whatever I can out of life. Life, just live for the moment. So that's futile thinking. Thinking without God at the core. And then the other phrase he uses to describe it here, he says, the world's understanding is darkened. They are darkened in their understanding. Bible teaches us that Jesus is the light of the world. But when people reject Jesus, they walk in darkness. And people that walk in darkness, they reach the point where they can't understand right and wrong anymore. They can't see right and wrong. They're blind to it. They're confused about it. Let me give you some examples this morning. I think most of you are well aware that for a number of years now, there's been the creation versus evolution uh, debate going on and which one you should teach in school or should you teach both. And, of course, the ACLU has been strongly opposed to uh, teaching creationism and kind of as a almost as a secondary argument. Uh, the uh, folks have argued, well, if you're going to teach Darwinism, if you're going to teach evolution, then you at least need to present the weaknesses of it. Because even the, the staunchest of those that believe in evolution will tell you, yeah, there's some real holes in, in, in it, and there's some things that we really don't understand. But yet they won't do that. They, they just want to teach it as fact. They don't teach it as a theory. They're darkened in their understanding. Why would scientists be afraid of legitimate questions? Isn't that what science is kind of about? You observe, you draw conclusions, and those kind of things. So why would, why? Because they're darkened in their understanding. Do you remember about a decade ago when the president of Harvard had to resign because he said that men and women were born with innate bi biological differences? He wasn't talking about physical, he was talking about mind. He said men and women are born with innate differences. And he had to resign over that comment. They are darkened in their understanding. If he would have suggested that uh, women were superior, I'm sure everybody would have been fine with that. But because he suggested that there are differences, and there are, he had to resign from his job. Darkened understanding. Another example. Paul Harvey, about a decade ago, when Lanesta first came out, that's the, uh, the sleep medicine. By law, people are required, pharmacists are required to put on that, that it might cause drowsiness. Now, there's a truth in advertising, right? It's a sleeping pill, and it might cause drowsiness. Nothing wrong with that. But yet, somehow, we don't want to inform women who are considering abortions we don't want to inform them that there could be physical and emotional scars from that. Not telling them whether they do or not, but just informing them that there might be emotional scars, physical scars, but yet we have to put it on a, a sleep medication. The world's understanding is darkened. Listen to how the message paraphrases these, words, this, this, these verses. I insist that there be no going along 
describes the crowd, the empty-headed, mindless crowd. They've refused for so long to deal with God that they've lost touch not only with God, but with reality itself. They can't think straight anymore. So first of all, Paul says, don't have the, the secular mindset. And now, in verse 18 and following, he's going to give us his second point. And he's saying the way that we think impacts the condition of our heart. He says they are separated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them. What happens if you isolate a person from food and water? They become dehydrated, they become lethargic, and eventually they will die. If a person is separated from God, the source of life, eventually they will become weak and sluggish. He goes on to say, the reason they are like this is because of their ignorance that is in them due to the hardening of their hearts in verse 18. Do you know what that word hardening means? That word hardening there, in, it, in its very basic original form, is the word used to talk about Something that is petrified. I've got a picture up there of a, of a piece of a tree that is petrified from the national forest in Arizona. And of course that means it's, uh, that, that tree has turned into stone. It's impenetrable. You know, when it was wood, you could penetrate it with things. But when it's a stone, you can't penetrate it. Well, that's what that word refers to here. It's a, it's a hardening that it means it's not penetrable anymore. A biblical example. Do you remember Pharaoh in the Old Testament? He didn't want to let the people of Israel go and there's this whole series of plagues that take place on his country and still his heart is so hardened that he won't let the nation of Israel go and it's only after his firstborn is taken from him that he, his heart softens but even then it's only temporary because as soon as he lets him go, he goes and tries to get him back. <laughs> Scriptures use that term hardening. His heart was so hard that it wasn't penetrable. Let me give you some modern day examples. People whose heart are so hardened that they scoff at the teachings of the Bible when other people tremble. People whose hearts are so hardened that they can see pictures of starving children and never give a dime to help. People that can participate in the grossest of sins without a twinge of conscience. They can get arrested for drunk driving, embarrass their family, alter their careers, and then in a month, do it again. Or how about, I don't know, I'm not, I'm not an Oscars fan, but I've got other people in the family that like watching the Oscars that were on last Sunday night. And I caught bits and pieces of it walking through the living room, and then you see the, the headlines in your web browser. How about ladies that can walk on national television with so little awe that, I mean, it leaves nothing to the imagination? Absolutely nothing. I mean, they might as well be walking across their knee. Their hearts are hard. There's no conscience. Their hearts are that or people that can leave their mate and their children and take off in some fantasy and never look back. 
Are people that are so incredibly hardened they can kill their own children and return to a party and their demeanor has not even changed? Or people that can execute a mass killing and then show up before a judge and act like they stepped on an insect? That's the world we live in. Hardened hearts. Jeremiah phrases it this way. Are they ashamed of their loathsome conduct? No. They have no shame at all. They do not even know how to blush. That's a great description. Hardened hearts. Did you know Albert Einstein in a lecture that he gave in 1948? I'll set the scene up for you a little bit. You know, in 1948, we were all worried about the atomic bomb. Or everybody was worried about the atomic bomb. say, we, I wasn't around then. Now, some of y'all were, but I wasn't. But, you know, what was going to happen with the proliferation of the atomic bomb? You know, how, how, how was that going to be kept in check? Was everybody just going to blow everybody up? You know, every nation just, you know, what was going to happen? And this is what he said in his lecture that day. He says, the true problem <coughs> lies in the hearts and thoughts of men. It's not a physical, but an ethical one. What terrifies us is not the explosive force of the atomic bomb, but the power of the wickedness of the human heart. That was the problem, he said, the heart. Tony Evans notes that many people smoke day after day, month after month, year after year, and then one day their ability to breathe is impacted because their lungs get hard. Lungs are meant to be soft and pliable, but when they get hard, they can't exchange the air. And when a person smokes like that and their, their lungs become hard enough, the air can't penetrate them. That's the way people are sometimes. They become so hardened to the things of God that they don't respond to God's truth. And they're characterized by this hardness. They become increasingly wicked, he goes on to say, verse 19. Having lost all sensitivity, they have given themselves over to sensuality so as to indulge in every kind of impurity with a continual lust for more. So if there's no accountability to God, anything goes. Because it's whatever feels good. Live in freedom. Do what comes naturally. Just do it. And then he goes on to say that that just creates a continual lust. Because that kind of thing is never satisfied when you live like that. It's like salt water creates a thirst. Well, when you live like that, it creates more of a lust. I can't remember when it happened. I'm thinking... A dozen years ago, maybe. But do you remember the Dateline series that they did where, where uh, the officials were trying to catch pedophiles? I don't know if you remember that, but it was, it was kind of a big thing when it happened. It was a Dateline story. And in fact, they even took part of it and put it on national news. And so they set up this sting operation to catch these child molesters. And in three days, they arrested over 50 men who came to this house thinking that they were going to have sex with minors. But the one that they put on national news was this guy who showed up and saw the sheriff's car parked in front of the house. Some of you are going to remember this. So he drove around and went through the back door of the house. 
even though he knew the police were there, he was so consumed with lust that he went through the back door of the house. That's what we're talking about here. Just this continued lust, this, this, this desire that can't be controlled. Having lost all sensitivity, they have given themselves over to sensuality so as to indulge in every kind of impurity with a continual lust for more. And then he mentions his last thing, and he kind of switches gears here a little bit. He tells us, beginning in verse 20, that we need to put on a Christian mindset. Put on a Christian mindset. You know, with the royal wedding that happened, I guess, last May 18th, somewhere in there, I was reading about that, and... When Meghan Markle married into the royal family, there was a whole set of etiquette rules that became part of what she needed to master, so to speak, and how she needed to live. And she kind of married into a dress code that has been in existence for hundreds of years. That means hats during the day, gloves on her hands, skirts that sit on or below the knee. Black clothing needs to be avoided unless you're in mourning or attending a remembrance event. Well, in the second half here, in the passage that we're looking at today, Paul wants us to understand what it means to put on the garments, so to speak, of Christianity. These new garments. He said you're to put away the old self and you're to put on the new self. He said this is what the Christian mindset ought to look like. Verse 20 and following. You, however, did not come to know Christ that way. Surely you have heard of him and were taught in him accordance with the truth that is in Jesus. You were taught with regard to your formal, former way of life to put off your old self, which is being corrupted by its deceitful desires, to be made new in the attitude of your minds, and to put on a new self created to be like God and true righteousness and holiness. And you can't see this in, 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 in the English version, but that first word, the you there, where it says you, you however, the Greek is a, a much more specific language. That you is really emphasized in the original Greek language. And it's like he's saying, he's pointing his finger and saying, you, I'm talking to you, you there, you are not to live that way. You have no business living like you are living. <coughs> he says, the world's understanding is darkened, but yours has been enlightened by this new attitude of your minds. Because we're created in the image of God. And, and when you become a Christian, you're supposed to be different. And you understand that you are to glorify him. But yet, we live in this season that anything that resembles Christianity seems to be frowned upon and anything that is of the devil seems to be glorified. Remember when Tim Tebow was kneeling and praying, just doing his own thing, not forcing himself on anybody, and he was just ridiculed and made fun of by all the national media? 
And then that football player by the name of Michael Sam comes along as the first openly gay football player. And he's just lifted up as a hero and everybody's doing feature stories on him. And sin is celebrated as right. And godly things are celebrated as wrong. That's what we're talking about here. When you follow Jesus Christ, you know what is right and what is wrong. The Christian mindset is dramatically different. Verse 21 said, verse 22, You were taught with regard to your former way of life to put off your old self, which is being corrupted by its deceitful desires. In other words, you can't trust your instincts. Your instincts will fool you. They'll get you into trouble. He goes on in verse 24. The Christian seeks needs to be like God in true righteousness. That simply means living rightly. It's not following your instincts. It's not following deceitful desires. It's filling your life with what is good. You see, a Christian mindset is, is not just not filling your life, your mind with bad things. It's filling your life with the good things of God. Chris Burke hit a Dramatic game-winning home run in the 18th inning a few years ago to lift the Houston Astros to the, the playoffs. And he became an instant hero in Houston. The next day, a teammate who was not a Christian said, what did you do to celebrate last night, Chris? And he said, well, after the game, I took my wife to a restaurant, and we just sat in the corner, and we just talked and just enjoyed the night. And his teammate made this comment said, you know, it's a shame you're a Christian. And the implication was, if you weren't a Christian, you could have had a whole lot more fun last night. Chris said, I wanted to say to him, it's a shame you're not. Because if you were a Christian, you would understand how much fun I actually had last night and how much better I felt the next day. That's, that's it. Filling, not just avoiding the, the secular Satan stuff, but filling ourselves with godly stuff. That's the biblical mindset. I want to read to you an essay from a guy by the name of Steve Turner. He's an English journalist. And please remember as I read this, he is being sarcastic. And I think he kind of summarizes a lot of the secular mindset. Now remember, this is sarcasm. This is what he says just kind of condenses the creed of the modern thinker. He said, we believe in Marx, Freud, and Darwin. We believe everything is okay as long as you don't hurt anyone, according to your definition of hurt. We believe in sex before, during, and after marriage. We believe in the therapy of sin. We believe adultery is fun. We believe sodomy is okay. And we believe that taboos are taboo. We believe that everything is getting better, despite evidence to the contrary. We believe there is something in horoscopes, UFOs, and bent spoons. We believe Jesus was a good man just like Muhammad, Buddha, and ourselves. He was a good moral teacher, although we basically think his good morals aren't worth living today. We believe that all religions are basically the same, and at least the ones we read were. They all believe in love and goodness. They only differ on matters of creation, sin, heaven, hell, God, and salvation. We believe after death comes nothing because when you ask the dead what happens, they say nothing. If death is not the end and death has lied, then it's compulsory heaven 
for everyone except perhaps Hitler, Stalin, and Saddam Hussein. We believe in total disarmament. Americans should beat their guns into tractors and our enemies surely would follow. We believe that man is essentially good and it's only, behave and it's only his behavior that lets him down. This is the fault of society. Society is the fault of conditions and conditions are the fault of society. We believe that each man must find truth that is right for him and reality will adapt accordingly. We believe there is no absolute truth except for the truth that there is no absolute truth. We believe if chance be the father of all flesh, disaster is its rainbow in the sky. And when you hear a state of emergency like sniper kills 10, youths go looting, bomb blast school, it is but the sound of man worshiping his maker. The futility of the world's thinking. I'll close with this. The executive was plagued by the strange disease that was causing splitting headaches and causing his ears to ring. So he went to an ear, nose, and throat doctor specialist who corrected his deviated septum, but the condition grew worse. He consulted an ophthalmologist who performed delicate optic nerve surgery. Later, a dentist did a root canal, but the man still had no relief. He finally saw a world-famous brain surgeon who said he only seen one other case like him, and that case proved to be fatal. So the man was despondent. He decided to quit his high-paying job and spend his retirement money on whatever he wanted. He had always longed to kind of have custom tailor-made suits. So the first thing he did was find a top-rated tailor, and as the tailor was measuring him for shirts, he called out the numbers to his assistant. Sleeve, 35 inches. Neck, 16 and a half inches. Oh no, said the executive. I have always worn a 15-inch collar. You better check again. So the tailor checked again, and he called out again. 16 and a half inches. The executive responded, but I insist you make it 15 inches because that's what I've always worn. Okay, said the tailor, but don't blame me if you get splitting headaches and ringing in your ears. <laughs> as funny as that is, I also think in a very serious way that that's maybe the way God feels sometimes. He's told us what's right, and we know what's right, but yet we choose to ignore it, and then we wonder about splitting headaches and ringing. We wonder why our world's in the mess it is, and God's told us what, what needs to happen, and we just ignore it. Our lives are totally different. Our mindset.